every stage I've gone through, people told me that the decision I wanted to make was not the right decision. I love my job. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we dispel five common myths about university teaching jobs. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 44. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Hey there, Daniel. Hey, Josh. How you doing? I am doing quite well today. How about yourself? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm happy to be back. And I'm happy to be back in the saddle with an IPA. That's right, Dan. I saw the name of this one. I thought, uh, I initially thought of you. This is the Founders Brewing from Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is the all-day IPA session ale, because I believe you could drink IPA all day I if given the chance. I don't think I could. I think that would probably be bad for my health. But it tastes delicious now. It's very, very cold, which is how an IPA should be served, in my opinion. You know, I've had a few um, pale ales that were session ales lately that have been very delicious, and I'm actually curious what a session beer is. Why don't you look it up, and we'll come back and find out. Huh. Session beer is a nebulous and occasionally provocative term in the world of craft beer appreciation. I feel so provoked right now. (laughs) Uh, Let's see here. The session beer. Really compelling radio, folks, (laughs) while Josh looks on the internet and reads it to you. Oh, interesting. I didn't know this. A session beer is any beer that contains no higher than 5% alcohol by volume featuring a balance between malt and hop characters and typically a clean finish um, so supposedly these session beers are supposed to be very drinkable given their fairly middle of the road flavor and their lower alcohol content well what is se- what is the etymology of session in this case like i have a drinking session and i can drink more of them that's exactly it so um, i guess it's been suggested that uh, it refers to one of two allowable drinking periods in england that were actually imposed on workers who were making who were making weaponry uh, during World War One, and so these sessions, when they were allowed to drink, were between eleven and three, and seven and eleven p.m. And so they couldn't have anything really high gravity because they'd blow themselves up or something. Yeah, and so apparently workers would find beer that they could adequately drink within these restrictive four-hour sessions that the government laid out. Although I would say, Dan, if my math is right, that's still Eight hours of allowable drinking a day. <laughs> it's quite a session. Um, quite a session. But yeah, surprising there were not more accidents in that factory. Yeah, but apparently um, a drinkable beer, that's really the, the key of what these session ales are. So Okay, well, we um, have not encountered very many non-session beers in our, our tenure. And here. I guess it makes sense why this is the all-day IPA. Very An IPA good. you could drink any time of the day, but especially between the hours of 11 and 3 and 7 and 11. We're, we're ready. And we are within one of those windows. There you go. Okay. We're, we're following the rules. Josh, I wanted to read some feedback we got on a on a way back episode, but I thought it was really um, good feedback. Can I okay. read it to you? Yeah, please. So this was a comment um, left on our show notes. And of course, you can leave comments in our show notes um, and have a conversation there if, a, if an episode really captured you. But 
Uh, this was episode 12, How to Help Veterans Succeed in Science and Why It's Important to All of Us. Do you remember that episode, John? That was a great episode, Dan. I would encourage anybody um, who hasn't heard that one to go back and listen. I learned a lot from that. Yeah, we interviewed um, John Shoup, who works with veterans and helps them uh, go back to college and progress in scientific training. And uh, the comment was, hey, Dan and Josh, amazing episode. The interview with Dr. Shoup moved me to tears at times. My mom is a retired VA hospital physical therapist, so everything that he said made perfect sense. Also, my former next-door neighbor is an ex-Marine postdoc. He seems to be one of the most honest, dutiful, and hardworking people I've ever met. A huge asset to science. So please go back and listen to that. It was, it was a whole episode about why it's so challenging to go back to college as a veteran, what you and I can do to make that process easier, and then why it's so important that we uh, reincorporate veterans as they return from wars into society because it makes a huge difference in, in all of our lives and in our culture. Absolutely. And Dan, I would be remiss if I didn't encourage you to tell us who wrote that comment. That was Doug Largent. Doug Largent, as in the Doug Largent trio, the uh, performer of our Hello PhD theme music. That is them. Yeah, we'll have to put up a link to to some of Doug's music because it's very good. I didn't realize Doug was a listener, but that is awesome. Yep. So what do we have today, Josh? All right, Dan. So today, uh, for those of you who are regular listeners, you heard part one of our interview with Dr. Shannon Jones. You promised me a follow-up. That's right. And what we're going to do today is part two of that interview. So as a reminder, Shannon is Director of Biological Instruction at the University of Richmond in Virginia, and she, uh, she has a non-tenure track um, teaching job there. And so what we're going to do today, last week we talked about some of the ways that she is working to, to really modernize scientific teaching. But this week we're going to really just talk about her job and what it's like to be a non-tenure track teaching faculty member at a university. And specifically what we're going to do, Dan, is she got into a lot of the the pushback and the myths that she heard, um, a lot of the discouragement she actually encountered when she was transitioning through her career into this position. Yeah, this is, this is going to be great because I remember, you know, there are stigmas all over science. One of them is don't go to industry because you're a sellout and you'll never work on a project. One is don't teach because it's a waste of your talents and it's you're only going to teach the Krebs cycle 500 times and it'll be boring. And um, I'm, I'm really curious to see what she encountered and then how she decided to, to go against that and, and did it work out for her. Yeah, and you know, it almost sounds negative, like the way you, you describe these jobs, like, oh, she's a non-tenure track faculty member. Yeah, you're saying what non, she is not. Yeah. Right, like we lead with the, <laughs> this, negative, uh, this negative identifier. Uh, but I want to actually go ahead and say, Dan, here's, here's some of the myths, and I've heard these too when I've encountered people talking about these types of careers or people who are weighing the options um, for these careers. And these are some of the things Shannon's going to just give her personal experience on. And that is, in these positions, the job security is not good. Okay, yeah, you could get fired as non-tenure. Non-tenure, right? They That's the whole point of tenure. You could tomorrow. do tomorrow. You could do whatever you want, you won't get fired, which actually is not exactly true. I would say uh even the most tenured faculty member who doesn't have grants for long enough is yeah, probably not, not going to stick. Okay, out. so job security, what else? Um, also the pay, not good. Yeah, you're going to make peanuts for teaching. Yep. Teachers don't make money. Yep, you're going to get stuck teaching some intro level course over and over again oh, and freshmen. it's going to be boring. Yep. Not going to be good. There's going to be no opportunity for growth. It's basically a career killer. Well, they're just waiting to fire you, I think. <laughs> of so course. why would they advance you why or pay you anything? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then last, in general, as somebody coming out of graduate school or coming out of a postdoc, it's bad for your career. You could do better. Oh, yeah. You are. It's a dead end. 
you're scraping the bottom of the barrel. This is like the lowest you could go is to teach. You could so do so much better. I believe all these things, Josh, and I'm, you're going to have a really hard time convincing me otherwise. Well, let's hear what Shannon has to say after she's been in this job for about a year now, and, and we'll see what we think at the end. Okay, well, I'll listen. All right, here's Shannon. So you mentioned you are in a non-tenure track yes. faculty position. How does your job differ from the tenure track faculty? Yes in your department. Right, so I have a 4-4 teaching load, which is the highest. What does that mean? So that means I teach four courses per semester. So in the fall, I taught four units. In the spring, I'm teaching four units. Whereas the tenure track faculty, they have a 3-2 load. So they teach three units in the fall, two units in the spring with the understanding that they need time to write grants and, um, and manage their lab. So they have a reduced course load, and I don't. So most all of my time is spent teaching and preparing materials for lab right so what are, what are we doing in lab the whole you know semester in, in, in managing ta so i think on a day-to-day basis again i'm um i'm free to work on my curriculum if i'm not teaching i'm meeting with students um but they're actually in the lab training students so if they're not in their office, more than likely they're in their lab training students. So on a day-to-day basis, that's how it differs. Um, so I won't go through a promotion uh, process, right? So I won't be evaluated on teaching research and service. I am evaluated on teaching a service, but I won't, say at the end of five years, I won't um, be eligible for promotion. So that's so my job, if you think of it, I, I won't ever be promoted, right? Um, so that's that's one concern is, is about stability, right? Because we know once people have attained tenure, um, their position is, is secure. So that was one of the concerns I had. But after coming to Richmond, um, I pretty much, my mind is at ease about that now because the director positions are pretty stable, continuing positions. I'm not viewed as a second-class citizen, which is what I worried about. I am the only director there that has a PhD. There may be some people who, who say because I'm not doing research, I'm not really... A true academic but for the most part in the department I have equal rights as a tenure track faculty member so I have voting rights when it comes to hiring new faculty so the really only thing that differs is that I won't go through the tenure promotion process so then is your contract renewed on an annual basis or what does that look like I am evaluated every year um, but my contract will be sort of my reappointment will happen in three years when you were looking at positions, when you were applying for positions, and this was on your list of positions as a non-tenure track, did people give you advice? I've heard, I guess I've heard some negative connotation yes. associated with non-tenure right. track positions. That's pretty much all I heard were the negative comments. Um, again, job security, pay is going to be, and you're going to be pigeonholed. It's going to get boring, and you, it, you're going to get stuck teaching this lower level course. You aren't going to be challenged. It's going to get boring. Um, it's basically my career is going to be halted, so I won't have any opportunities for growth. Um, those are the things that I heard. So basically it was going to be bad for my career and that I could do so much better. I heard that several times. You can, you could have a, a tenure track position. You could do so much better than just a lecturer. But I never once thought that I could not get a tenure track position and do well. That, is, that was never my line of thinking. I didn't want that for myself, and I held firmly to that. I actually did apply for tenure track positions. I actually got offers for three of those, but I looked at, I thought about what my day-to-day experience was going to be, and I knew I was going to be miserable because 
even as a postdoc, so I had to balance teaching and research. I, the only time I was happy was when I was thinking about my class, what I wanted to do in the class. Okay, what, what kind of activity am I going to do? I want to use this case study. That was the only time I really enjoyed what I was doing. Versus in the lab, I was pretty much there because I was a postdoc. That was my job. only time I've truly been happy is when I was mentoring students in the lab or teaching them in the classroom. And I thought... All of that said, all of these cons or disadvantages that people brought to my attention, they were outnumbered by this feeling that I, I felt fulfilled by the teaching. And so that's, that's what drove me to accept this position. And it's just the pressure of the funding right now. And I talk to tenured uh, people who are on tenure track. And I mean, they like what they do, but they're definitely stretched thin. Um, I just made a personal decision about the life that I wanted in and that's sort of the positives outweigh the negatives, in my opinion. But those are the things I heard when trying to decide tenure versus no tenure. So for you, non-tenure track was a plus. Yes. I go every day, and I know exactly what's on my plate to do today. It's preparing materials for class this week and preparing for lab. And essentially, if I'm not in lab or if I'm not in class, my time is my own. I can choose to um, do research, either education or... And that's the beauty of my position. If I want to actually do research, I can. It's just not required. And I have the resources to do, to do that. And actually, I'm going to have three students working with me this summer doing research. And I'm going to use that information to pilot new labs for class. Um, and so to me, it's just the best of both worlds. I don't have to rely on grant funding or publication to do my job or to keep my job actually mm -hmm. uh, and I just really love teaching mm -hmm. and the students they see that and they respond well to it and so tenure or not it's just I, I my happiness and my passion is more important mm -hmm. than being able to say I'm an assistant or associate professor that just was never important to me so I want to go yeah. through some of these things you listed yes. as potential negatives for non-tenure track mm -hmm. yes. so you can tell me if you found these to be actual negatives or not. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you, the job security, you've sort of talked about mm -hmm. that. That seems to be okay. Yes. There, I have there, faculty directors who've been in their positions for 10, for 10 years. It's boring. It's not boring because, so yes, I've taught the same class, and I've taught this same unit four times. Like, I, I taught two units the first semester, I'm teaching two now, and it's the same material but I see things that I want to change. And again, this is my research. To me, what I do in the class is research because say if I'm designing an experiment, I have an hypothesis, I think this technique will serve this purpose. I collect the data, right? I, I look at the student's assessment of it. That's the data and I say, I make some conclusions. Okay, either it worked or didn't work. If it didn't work, how can I improve it? So all of the material that I taught last semester, I've tweaked and modified every lecture every problem set and so if I continue to do that it's not boring because again it's my passion and I have fun with the students uh, like I said I enjoy writing case studies to me that's research is coming up with a topic that I can relate to something in the real world and getting the students feedback so and it's new students every semester I'll do, and I can say honestly that the personalities from last semester are vastly different it's a completely different experience so for the last semester I taught first semester sophomores and now I'm teaching second semester freshmen and you would think that's not a big deal but they're all they're still freshmen they have different needs than my first group did so it's a completely different dynamic and every semester is going to be like that so what about lack of 
opportunities for promotion or growth? I, right. Um, so for me, growth is improving my craft. I have the resources to go to conferences, bring back new information. Now, I will say that traditionally people in my position are restricted to teaching lower level classes. Um, but I've actually vocalized my preference for teaching a 300 level course. I have the background to do it and I can. So I've just accepted the fact that yes, I'm always going to be teaching and that's fine with me. But the, the unique thing about Richmond is that I'll, I won't have any promotion. There are merit-based raises every year. So my work will be evaluated and my evaluation determines you know, the raise that I get. So to me that satisfaction is that I see my students enjoying what I'm doing and then I'm rewarded for it. So yes, it's not promotion in the traditional sense, but I think if my students are happy, that's all I really want. So I, I don't focus too much on the, the, the pigeonholing. I, I will say that the position is what you make it. If you want to advance, then you have to be vocal about it and say, this is what I want to do. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're a good teacher and the students respond well, you're always getting positive reviews, they aren't gonna want to lose you, right? So they're gonna do what they can to keep you there, keep you happy and productive. And if that means giving you the opportunity to teach a 300 level course, they will. And the department chair has told me that as much. You know, the students are, think you're great. We want to keep you here. We want to keep you happy. So we're trying to give you um, this room to grow. Yes, you're going to always have to teach this 200-level course. But in addition to that, you can do these other things. Well, and you, yeah. you, know, you mentioned earlier when I heard your talk yeah. that I mean, you've been there less than a year, but you've already been given a leadership position yes. in this other right. program so, that's not related right. to that at all. So there is room for growth. And I think that's just a myth. No, no, I won't ever become associate or full professor, but the, I, I will be able to take on other responsibilities. I can actually serve as committees of, of their, uh, a chair of various committees in service to the department. So there's definitely room for growth. Again, I won't ever be full professor, but I still do have a room for growth, mm -hmm. I think, there. And again, going to conferences, networking, meeting people, I get to, I can publish, right? So that's another avenue. I'm not required to, but I can publish. So this is going to keep doors open for me. In the event that I ever wanted to leave and apply for a tenure track position, I think I could set myself up well to do that as long as I continue to, to do work. And I actually am working on um, a small publication in terms of, of my research in education. So I'm actually doing educational research right now as a part of my position. Mm -hmm. So there's definitely room for growth. I, I think that's also a myth. So you're happy with your job? I love my job. I get up every day and it's it's... It's easy for me to get up and go. I, I go in super early and I stay there like really late because it's fulfilling. I'm happiest when the, I see the students talking to each other in class and they're really animated and they always have questions. Like I, I show this case. We did a case study on CTE, brain injury, and we talked about the movie with Will Smith, <laughs> Concussion. I had all kinds of questions. I'm like, so, so it's really just protein accumulating like yeah it's protein and it's like man I didn't know that so to see them engaged is what makes my day and they tell me all the time we can tell you really like doing this Dr. Jones and I do and that to me is the greatest feeling is to be able to do something that you love and to finally be happy um, and to feel like people value your skills and I haven't felt that before 
I don't I didn't I never had this confidence that I have now so I love my job yeah I was gonna ask that's different than when you're yeah. in the lab that's definitely not how I felt when I was in the lab yeah. I I almost felt out of place like I knew I can do this but this is not who I am like I talked to people who you know really bummed out their their experiment didn't work I mean and, and to me it's like okay it didn't work I'll just try again but it never I don't know I just felt like this wasn't my perfect fit I can do this I'm good at it but I'm not passionate about it it's not what drives me only time I ever felt driven in the lab was when I was working with undergrads and to see them applying for a post-bac program I have a student who um, I worked with her she taught she was in my class when I taught and I worked with her in the lab and she had very little experience she never she didn't knew, know much about grad school but just having worked with me seeing how excited I was about science in general make her excited and now she's applied to grad school she's gotten accepted and to me that's the best thing it's not how many papers I have published how many first author publications and what journal that's not what matters to me it's seeing my students enjoying science and moving forward and just yeah that's yeah. that's that's great that's great so the last question I have is what advice do you have to people who are listening who maybe they're in grad school mm -hmm. now or they're a postdoc now who are exactly where you were maybe they realize they feel like a fish out of water right. in the research right. world that they've been exposed to or they mm -hmm. think they may mm -hmm. love teaching and mm -hmm. want to go that route mm -hmm. But they're in the middle of trying to do all this research and maintain all of those responsibilities. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have mm -hmm. to somebody to set themselves up for success mm -hmm. in getting a teaching career, like similar to the one that you have? I'd say no matter what, be true to yourself. So I think at every, every stage I've gone through, people told me that the decision I wanted to make was not the right decision. Um, I'm from North Carolina. I wanted to come to grad school in North Carolina. No, you need to venture out try something you know do you need to leave I didn't leave I stayed in North Carolina okay if you you already got your PhD at UNC you should not stay here and do your postdoc this is going to be terrible for your career it's going to show that you're afraid to change okay I didn't do that I stayed um, I did my postdoc here at UNC it set me up I met the right people when I did my teaching I got all this experience um, I networked I have a ton of, of, of support here still at UNC um, and then they told me, don't take this this non-tenure track position. It's a dead end. Um, it's going to get boring. And I took it anyway. So the, to me, the lesson is be true to yourself. Know what your strengths are and be willing to accept that. Um, and know what your passions are and to not let what other people think of it discourage you. And just whatever you set out to do, be the best at it. Like. Um, for me, again, I go every day into the class giving the students all that I have. Like, and if the lecture doesn't go as well as I planned, I was like, you know what? I spent all, you know, I spent all the time I could just trying to make this um, good for the students. So if you keep the goal in mind, I think, and, and just be true to yourself and what your strengths and your passions are, it can't, it, it can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. That's to me the biggest lesson I've learned is even in the face of just like discouraging comments, just be true to yourself. All right, Dan, that was my conversation with Shannon. That dispelled several myths for me, which I think is, is really helpful. And, and of course I was, I was playing devil's advocate at the top there, but um, it's really easy that even if you know that these probably aren't true to, to kind of 
believe them or to subconsciously um, weight a teaching job lower because you've heard all of, all of these myths so often that it just feels like, well, they must be a little bit true, right? Yeah, it can become so pervasive. And, you know, I remember going through that, Dan, when I stepped off the faculty tenure track. It's really powerful when you have people that are kind of in these authority positions over you directly saying to you, you're making a mistake, you could do better, this is not good for your career. It puts you in a really challenging position between, well, this is what I really think I want to do with my life, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe these seeds of doubt that can be sown by these advisors can really be powerful. But you really hear it in the way she describes her work. I mean, she loves it. And she would have regretted it if she had chosen some other path. And I, I think that's it. Everybody will tell you you'll regret doing the thing that you really love. Um, but the reality is you're going to regret doing the thing that they told you to do. Absolutely. And I imagine this would have been a very different interview had she taken one of those three tenure track positions and she was trying to get her lab up and going. And, and that's not really what she wanted to do or was passionate about. I think what I was really hoping to get out of this and you know what I took away from it was if you're out there and you know I love to teach, maybe you love to teach undergrads or rotation students in your lab or you've gotten the opportunity to do some classroom teaching and you feel like Shannon, you feel like, you know what, the only time I really feel excited and fulfilled is are in these teaching contexts, you should know no matter all of the negativity you may be hearing or people trying to dissuade you that that's not a good path, that very much could be the perfect path for you. And hopefully you could hear it in Shannon's voice. These jobs are out there and they can be really great if teaching is what you want to do. You know, the only teaching I did in grad school was medical students. That was its own. Oh my. Wax. Yeah, that How was, was that? <laughs> really fascinating. Lots of really great people. Lots of really weird people. Uh, <laughs> I've got stories to tell. I see you took off two points, but I think uh, you only should have taken off 1.7 points. Yeah, I was wondering, in the latest Journal of the American Medical Association, every question is not a question. It's a statement about how much you had already learned on your own. So, <laughs> love, love the medical students. Yeah, we do. All right, well, Josh, that was a, a great interview, and I would like to move to the etymology puzzle if you're ready. Let's bring it on. Okay. You'll remember last week I had another leprosy-themed clue. And it was, if the skin on your head flakes or peels, it's probably not leprosy, but this common condition. Very common condition. I'm pretty sure I know this one, Dan. As I alluded to in my second clue. Yeah, you had it I dropped a clue last week. Uh, I think this is probably dandruff. Now, dandruff and leprosy, those two shouldn't be related at all, should they? I wouldn't think so. Uh, Different causes. Pretty different causes, but actually, and this is the reason that I thought this one was so fun is because it goes to a totally different language base. So obviously leprosy was not confined to people who could speak Latin or Greek or, or whatever. Um, the first part of dandruff, it's not clear where the Dan part comes from. Oh, I know where it comes from, Dan. Probably from me, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the druff part is uh, Northumbrian or East Anglican, and it comes from an Old Norse word, rufa, which means scab. Um, say that again. I can't say <laughs> Old Norse. Hrufra. I, I don't think we've ever done an Old Norse I, word I was going to say, I don't recall that. Hrufra. So scab, but that led to an Old English word, hrufla, which meant leper. So Really? The so there's hruff, a connection. The hruff, or whatever that that sound is, uh, is connected. So it came from their knowledge of, of leprosy. They're like, oh, this is sort of like leprosy. There was a word that meant scab or scale or whatever, and when they noticed people with this disease, it turned into a word to describe that disease. Now, do people with dandruff, are they all named Dan? 
I don't think so. That seems unlikely. That would be a very small market share. I think Head and Shoulders would be out of business by now. I mean, I do always have to vacuum your stool after. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's like a, a <laughs> snowstorm over here. <laughs> All right, Josh. In the interest of a theme, I have a third leprosy-related word origin. I'll tell you, if there are people out there who have uh, PTSD surrounding <laughs> leprosy, yeah. we apologize. Hansen's disease, sorry. Okay, Hansen's disease. Hansen's yep, that disease. is the, the correct term. So here's, here's your clue for next week. Okay. The pale white skin of leprosy is caused by bacteria, not this laundry room chemical used for whitening and disinfection. The pale white skin of leprosy is caused by bacteria, not this laundry room chemical used for whitening and disinfection. Should add that it's probably also a laboratory chemical. Um, remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find that the literal meaning of that science word is a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I will randomly select a winner from all the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. And also, Dan, we had a winner this week. Congrats to Katie Kang, who sent in the correct answer. I think I'm out of leprosy words, but we'll see. We make no promises. No promises whatsoever. Josh, how can people uh, communicate with us? Sure. We would love to hear from you if you have feedback on a past episode or if you've got something you'd like to hear us talk about on a future episode. Shoot us an email, podcast at hellophd.com. You can tweet at us at hellophd. You can connect with us on our Facebook page or, as Dan mentioned, the comment we read today, we have a comment section on the show notes page for every episode. You can always leave some feedback there. Um, Josh, the day is still young. Are you ready to uh, crack open another all-day IPA? Oh, Sorry, Dan, we are out of the uh, drinking session window. Oh, uh, we better get back to work making weapons in our factory. <laughs> Time to get back to the munitions. All right, we'll see you next week. All right, see you next week. Pew, pew. And we're back. This is... <coughs> 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 <coughs>